today, let's open our Bibles to 1 Corinthians 12, and we are in this mini-series on the Holy Spirit. This is the last week. I'm going to talk about really a sweet spot of mind, spiritual gifts. But can I say this? We're not just talking about the Holy Spirit. It sounds weird, right? Like for three weeks we're talking about the Holy Spirit. We need to talk about the Holy Spirit every day, right? It's kind of like prayer. I don't need to read another book on prayer. I need to pray. And it's the same with the Holy Spirit. So um, obviously we need teaching. More than anything, we need to live in this, guys. Uh, we need the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, for the empowerment of our lives, for the work of ministry. I think what I've been trying to get across in this series is there is a grand invitation out there for the third person of the Holy Spirit, for you inviting him into your life to take you on a deeper journey, to take you to depths you've never been. Um, I think there's semantics in the church. You know, I think charismatics and evangelicals, they squabble over some of these things. I think we agree on more than we think. I just think words are messing us up. So whether it's fillings or baptisms or second fillings, you know, whatever it is, will we all agree we need more of the Holy Spirit in our lives? So the grand invitation is out there. Why don't we just ask? Now, for some of us, you're going to have to get past your head because you've been walking with God for a while and your head has taken over your heart. For baby Christians, you're in a sweet spot. You're, you're, you're childlike. You can ask. I had a lady in the first service came up to me. She goes, Pastor Bob, I'm Church of Christ. If you don't know what that is, they don't even allow uh, instruments in worship. That's how far right they are. And she said, this is the scariest thing I've ever heard. And I'm like, you're right. It's scary. Most things are. But you take a step and God will show up. So, you know, Jesus said, if you ask your father for bread, he's not going to give you a stone. How much more will he give you the Holy Spirit to those that ask? So uh, my, my just recommendation is ask, seek, knock, invite, and the Holy Spirit will invade every depth of your being that you might know what your calling is and the power of the resurrection and all that Christ wants to do. Now, the gifts of the Spirit are my sweet spot. And the reason it's my sweet spot, it's the reason I'm a pastor. I love to see the orchestration of gifts either programmed or not programmed. So Wednesday nights out on the lawn, a thousand people gather. And what you don't know, there's people from 12 in the afternoon here working to prepare that night with all types of gifts. What you may also not know is when the service is all over and everything we plan, the Holy Spirit's still working. There was a summer night last year where it's probably 60, 70 people still on the lawn. We were doing aftermath inside. And a woman came up to me and said, God gave me a dream about you. And she said, I was never going to tell you the dream unless you said hello and you said hello tonight. And she said, here was the dream. There was a tree behind you and it was being lobbed off with lob shears. And then after it was all lobbed down, new growth came. And she said, is this crazy? I said, no, it's so spot on. Uh, if I gather people really close to me, they would think you had inside knowledge. And it was just a word of wisdom, a word of encouragement. We're going to look at some of those gifts today. So the Holy Spirit works through programs, and then he's overriding everything and working through the things we haven't even programmed. In fact, he's working right now in all of our lives as I speak. It's the beauty of what the Holy Spirit does. As we get into the gifts, I want to make one thing clear. The gifts are wonderful. They're powerful. Uh, God has empowered us to reach a world in need. But the primary work of the Holy Spirit is in your life and my life to conform you into the image of Christ. See, a lot of people, uh, I'm not going to say they don't want to hear it. It's a lot easier to move in the gifts than to live a holy life. 
it's a lot easier to teach about prophecy than to live a holy life. God has called us, and by the way, he doesn't, God will bring anything down, anything. God's not a respecter of persons. His longing is to transform you into the image of his son, that you might become Christ-like, that you might become holy, be set apart. It takes the presence of Christ made real to us by the Holy Spirit as we engage in the spiritual disciplines, whether they're prayer, fasting, solitude, there's many of them, to transform us into the person God has longed for us to be. Now I'm going to tell you something you don't want to hear again. Uh, that's a lifelong process. That's not overnight. Spouses know that. They probably should be, yes, Pastor Bob, you're right. Transformation is a long process, right? It is. Uh, here's what happens. There's this miracle of conversion, right? So at my conversion, God took a bunch of stuff away. One of them was foul language, like instantly. I haven't cursed since the day I got saved unless I used it for effect, which I rarely do, okay? You, you know, I could be hammering a nail into a piece of wood and hit my thumb, and I would not curse. And I don't take any credit for it. God just took that away. I was with somebody last week who they were saying, oh my gosh, this is my supreme struggle as a Christian. Now, I have supreme struggles that God didn't take away and you might wonder, why is transformation lifelong? I'll give you a few reasons. One is family of origin. <laughs> so when I do weddings, um, I gather everybody together and I say, okay, now everybody believes this is going to be like a marriage made in heaven, right? And I tell the couple, you're going to expect all this beauty and bliss, but can I give you a little shot of reality? Each of you were raised by imperfect parents who were raised by imperfect parents. That's at least eight imperfect people counting yourselves. And we're supposed to put all that imperfection together, say go, and everything's going to be perfect. Doesn't work that way. Family of origin. We were all raised by parents who had their proclivities and failings and wonderful sides. There was a family in church. They were here for a while. They were serving in ministry. But when things got dicey, or hard, they would scream and yell at each other. And one time, gently kind of broached that subject with one of them, and they're like, we never scream or yell. See, that's the problem with family of origin. They're so used to screaming and yelling, they don't even know they're doing it. Now, you could have a family of origin where it's all bottled up, so don't think you're higher than you are. You were made to suppress. So there is a lifelong work of the Holy Spirit. Here's the second problem. We are relational beings. You ever notice that? We have wants and feelings and desires. We are complicated. We're complex emotionally and spiritually, and we have to relate to one another, and it's hard. Heard a couple say last week, we have trouble deciding where to go to dinner, and we're madly in love with one another. Forget about the weightier things of life. And then there's fallenness and there's temptation and desire. What I'm trying to say is without a deep work of the Holy Spirit, we're never going to get where we need to go. Self-help doesn't work. You know, all these ideas that man has doesn't work. It's just the abiding of the Holy Spirit and a desire to be transformed. It's lifelong, guys. You know, I look at Caleb at 80 years and he's still walking by faith, still wanting to grow. That's where I want to be. That's where I am now. It's where we all need to be. So the, the main work of the Holy Spirit is to take us to depths we never thought we'd go. Which means the journey's different for everybody in this room. And, and listen, Christ didn't die to make us moral. 
Christ didn't die so we will watch less TV or be on our phones less. Like, the fruit of the Spirit is joy, peace. There is a walk where God is calling all of us to higher ground to the image of his Son. My life will look different than your life. Your life will look different than my life. But it's all about what the Holy Spirit is doing. Now, secondary to that, there is this thing called church and reaching the world, and he's given us spiritual gifts. So let's look at 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 1. Now, concerning spirituals, the pneumaticon, your Bible should have gifts and italics because it's not there. These are spirituals. Brethren, he's writing to Christians. I do not want you to be ignorant, for you know that you were Gentiles carried away to these dumb idols. Corinth was at least the third or fourth largest city in the world by this time, uh, fully Gentile. And therefore, I make known to you that no one speaking by the Spirit of God calls Jesus accursed, and no one can say that Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. Now, starting in verse 4, you're going to pick up a theme. There are diversities of gifts. It's the same Spirit. There are differences of ministries, but it's the same Lord. And there are diversities of activities, but it's the same God. You know, to one is the word of knowledge, one is the spirit of prophecy. It goes on and on. Look at verse 11. But it's the one and the same spirit working in all these things, distributing to each one individually, circle this, as he wills. He's the conductor. We're the orchestra. One final verse, verse 18. God has set members in the body as he pleased, and we're all members uh, equally, though we're made up as individuals. Pick up a theme there. Theme is oneness. Brethren, I don't want you to be ignorant about spiritual gifts. Now, you can be ignorant two ways. You may be a new Christian here, and you've never heard of spiritual gifts. So teaching is necessary. That was not the Corinthian problem. Their ignorance is that the gifts were out of whack. They were in abuse. They had gone awry. How do I know? Well, there were divisions. Paul writes in chapter 1, you're divided among leadership. I'm of Apollos, I'm of Paul, I'm of Peter. Chapter 3, I wanted to write to you as spiritual, but now i got to write to you as carnal. Even here, when he goes through the gifts, he has to insert a love chapter, and he has to tell them to do everything decently and in order, which tells me it was undecent and it was out of order. And I chuckle every time I come to Corinthians because, at least in charismatic churches, when we build doctrines of these sign or revelatory or speaking gifts, we always use this as our text to a church that was out of order. It's unbelievable. So Paul's saying there's ignorance all over the place, and he's arguing for oneness. He's the conductor of the orchestra. I love orchestras. I really do. I don't, I don't like the ones that just play old classical music. I like where they combine different things, but I, I love listening and watching. I just look at all these members of an orchestra. I, I watch the violinist for a time, and then, you know, the woodwinds over here, and, and this beautiful symphony they make, and sometimes I stare, and because I run an organization, I know what's going on. Those people don't all get along. You realize that? Those 75 people have a boatload of problems. They probably argue with each other when, before they went on and argue when they go off. But for a brief and shining moment, they make beautiful music. The church wouldn't be dissimilar. 
The Holy Spirit desires to do something among us. God uses fallen people. He uses all of our gifts, and sometimes for a brief and shining moment, we get it right. Sometimes we get it wrong, but at least we get it, right? Um, sometimes when we look at the gifts of the Spirit, we go right to these sign gifts. There's nine, right? Word of wisdom, word of knowledge, speaking in tongues. Wow, these are the gifts. Well, wait a second. There's Ephesians 4, Romans 12, there's Acts. There's at least 26 gifts that are representative of other gifts. There's administration, there's leadership. You know giving's a gift? Now giving's a gift like every other gift. It doesn't mean we all don't give. We all do, we all should. Some people have a gift of giving, which means they have a gift to make money, lots of money, right? Uh, there's a gift of faith. We all have faith. Some people have a supreme gift of faith. There's administration, there's mercy, right? Sometimes we run right to these gifts because it's what we can see supposedly on a stage. Actually, my favorite verse in the Bible about gifts isn't even in the New Testament. It's in Exodus 31, where God's instructing Moses to build a tabernacle in the wilderness. And in verse 1, the Lord spoke to Moses and said, See, I have called by name Bezaliel, the son of Uri, the son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah, and I have filled him with the Spirit of God. What's he going to do, speak in tongues? No, there's a job to be done. He has wisdom and understanding and knowledge in the manner of workmanship to design artistic works in gold and silver and bronze and cutting jewels and carving wood. We need to build a tabernacle, and God said, I'm going to gift this man for that. It's beautiful. About 12 years ago, I took 20 of our contractors to Trinidad on a missions trip. And the reason I took them there is we were building a children's classroom and some other things for a pastor I knew down there, and I knew I could never get these guys on the mission field if they couldn't work with their hands. So we get down there, we got all this power equipment we're building. And I told them that night after dinner, we were going to go to a prison. So we're eating dinner, and the guy next to me said, what are you going to speak on tonight at the prison? I said, oh, I'm not speaking. He said, who is? I said, you are. He goes, what? He goes, I've never spoken to anybody in my life. I said, well, you spent all last night telling me you were in jail and God delivered you, right? He said, yeah. I said, well, why in the world? Well, I've never been in jail. Why would I speak to prisoners when you've been there? And he's like, huh, huh, huh. <laughs> Long story short is we did something like that every night, and those guys for the next 12 years traveled the world on missions trips. Beautiful thing. Yeah, give the Lord a hand. So I don't want to pigeonhole gifts into these sign gifts, nor, nor, do I want you to use these gifts as an excuse for not the gifts we're going to look at? I don't want you to think, oh, praise God, I got a mercy gift or I got a helps gift. I'm going to go make a cup of coffee uh, in the table so I can get away from all these other gifts I'm afraid of. Okay? That's not what we're talking about. Some of you need to activate these gifts in your life. They're very powerful. Um, one more time before I get into these gifts. You need to know, and I've said this before, not everybody believes these gifts are for today. And the reason I'm going to say that is I don't want you to leave here all excited about the gifts, and then you hear someone say, these passed away with the last apostle or when we received the scriptures. Uh, one of the, these people are called cessationists. Uh, one of the leading cessationists who was actually uh, vehemently opposed 
to the gifts is John MacArthur. And the reason I mention John is because I highly respect him. Read all his books. We sell his books. He's my go-to for expository preaching. He's a stellar man of God. But vehemently opposes the gifts, especially tongues. I ran into John in a parking lot a long time ago. It was a divine encounter. We were just walking, you know, to and from our cars, and there he was. I said, Dr. MacArthur, I never thought I'd meet you. You've really inspired me and had a great effect on my ministry. However, I do have one question. I know you're a cessationist, but here's my story. I got saved. Uh, somebody showed me verses in Acts, the verses I showed you last week. No one ever touched me. No one ever manipulated me. I never heard anything. And I spoke in other tongues. So what gives? And he said, well, there's several medical possibilities for, you know, what you experienced. And as much as I respected the man, I remember what Warren Wearsby had said long, long ago. No man or woman will probably ever get to more than 85% of being right in their theology. You know what that means? That means we're all about 15% off somewhere. Because if we were 100%, we would be God, right? And so I'm able to respect John MacArthur, but also understand that these gifts are for today. Now, R.C. Sproul, who would be in John MacArthur's camp, is far more generous. He said one of the most spectacular movements ever to sweep through the Christian church is the charismatic movement. From the outbreak of speaking in tongues in the Azusa Street Mission in Los Angeles to the early part of the 20th century to the growth of Pentecostal Assemblies of God churches to the spread in the Roman Catholic Church and mainline Protestant churches in the 60s, some of you are a product of the Catholic charismatic revival. The charismatic revival has sparked zealous devotion among its adherents and fueled deep theological discussion. No church historian can ignore the impact of charismatics on the modern church. So before we get started in these gifts, let me give you seven reasons why the gifts are today. I know when somebody says seven reasons, you start looking at your watch and you get terrified. This is less than three minutes. Number one, the first thing you learn in systematic theology is something is doctrinal if Jesus talked about it you see it in the book of Acts, and it's expounded in the epistles. In Mark 16, 15, Jesus said, these signs will follow them that believe. They'll speak in other tongues. They'll lay their hands on the sick. They'll recover, etc." We see that in the book of Acts. Walked you through that last week. And now 1 Corinthians 12 through 14, we have the expounding. So I think it's profitable for doctrine. The Corinthian conundrum is this. We're going to look at this in chapter 13 where Paul says love never fails. He says whether there are prophecies, um, they will fail, and tongues will cease. And then it goes on to say knowledge will vanish, and that which is perfect has come, right? And so the argument is that which is perfect, is that the New Testament, or is that Jesus coming in his second coming? I'm going to argue it's Jesus in his second coming. I don't think two guys were sitting in Corinth when this letter was read, and Joe's bumping Harry like, Yo, Harry, we're not going to speak in tongues anymore once we get a Bible. You know, they're talking about Jesus. And not only that, you know, the evangelicals pride themselves on scholarship. Well, how come knowledge didn't vanish? So, um, number three, Joel's prophecy. The day of Pentecost, they all speak in tongues. Peter said, no, they're not drunk. This is what Joel said. In the last days, men will have visions, women will dream, so forth and so forth. It names all the gifts of the Spirit. 
until the sun goes out and the moon turns to blood, which tells me, go back and read it in Acts, these gifts will be here until what we say in the book of Revelation, the coming of Christ, and any man who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. So pretty plain to me there. Church history, I read you quotes all through church history of, of men that were filled with the Spirit and believed in the baptism of the Spirit, etc. Uh, the, even among the Reformed movement, we have people like John Piper, who I quoted, and R.C. Sproul, who are sympathetic. And then there's just common sense. Common sense. Why would so much of Acts and here in Corinthians be dedicated to gifts in the Bible that churches would read about that would never practice it? So when I look at common sense, I kind of land with Martin Lloyd-Jones, who kind of gets this tension, and he says, we must, we must not say for New Testament times or always, the answer is, as he wills. The Holy Spirit is operating in the church, and probably for all time, it's as he wills. Okay? So be open-minded. I will talk about some of these. Let's get started. Verse 8 says that to one is given, not to everyone, to one. Might be one time, or maybe you have it a lot, but, but you have the gift. The word of wisdom through the Spirit to another, the word of knowledge through the Spirit. Now, someone's going to come along and act like they know the difference and try and quote me all this theological jargon. Look, we're splitting hairs, guys. I've read everything you can read, and I still don't know the difference. I'll take a crack at it. Uh, let's talk about wisdom. Do you know God has given us natural wisdom, i.e., you have a brain, right? Uh, there is a book in the Bible called Proverbs. There's proverbial wisdom. Uh, Solomon wrote many Proverbs. These were kind of codified by the Holy Spirit. To know wisdom and instruction, to perceive words and understanding, to receive the instruction of wisdom, justice, judgment, and equity, to give prudence to the simple, a wise man will understand and hear learn. You go on and on. Now, you read the book of Proverbs, you're going to become very wise. So God gave you a brain, he gave me a brain. Now, we get to places in life where we hit crossroads. Uh, do I go to this college or that college? Do I take this job or that job? Do I, uh, do I marry this person or that person? So I always go through a checklist. What does the Bible say? Now, the Bible doesn't tell me who to marry. It tells me what kind of person to marry. Should I repeat that? Yeah, I'm going to repeat it because 90% of my counseling is people that marry unbelievers. So I'll repeat it for myself. And maybe it'll, you'll catch my drift. All right? The Bible doesn't tell you who to marry. It tells you the kind of person to marry. Okay? So in other words, what's the Bible say? If the Bible's not clear, then I go to, you know, who are my trusted advisors and what do they say? The people I really value. Number three, what's past pain and experience tell me? And finally, what, what's the Holy Spirit in my gut telling me? Now, sometimes after all that process, you somewhat know what direction you're going to take. And then someone comes along and gives you a word of wisdom. To me, a word of wisdom is, is a gift of the Holy Spirit where, listen to this, a fraction or a fragment of God's wisdom is received supernaturally and delivered naturally. Does everybody know we're called to be supernaturally natural? 
which is the opposite of what you see on Christian television, where they are supposedly supernaturally, ridiculously supernatural, but they're not natural. In fact, they look as alien as anything you've ever seen. And don't use David dancing naked as the excuse for everything you see on TV, right? That we're supposed to be undignified. God is a supernatural God. A lot of what he does is natural. A lot of it's unnatural, right? Chariots and fires, it's, it's all through the Bible. But a word of wisdom is where somebody comes along and just says something with you and it clicks in your spirit. It, it's just, wow, that's, that's the word I needed. Uh, believe it or not, we're trained to think that has to happen on a stage. I believe it happens in smaller groups. Uh, with the, I'm laughing because with the advent of technology, I have people, board members, who text me words of knowledge now. And you know it's God because it's what you already thought, and it's almost like God saying, look, I know what you're going through, and that person kind of seconds it. The word of knowledge is a little trickier. I'm not going to go into semantics here. I think it's almost the same thing, but it's a little more forward or future-oriented. It's not, these aren't foretelling gifts, right? This isn't thus saith the Lord, 9-11's coming, or the end of the world. That's not what we're talking about here. But it's a little forthcoming in our lives. Chuck Smith, who started Calvary Chapel, was a bivocational pastor until he was 37 years old. His churches never grew beyond 50, so he had to support himself working other jobs. At a very low point in his ministry, a woman came along and said, I see you one day as a shepherd among shepherds. Now, think about hearing that. How encouraging is that? This man was called. He's doing his best. Nothing's happening. And then he gets this word, whether it's a word of wisdom or a word of knowledge, and he feels empowered, like, wow, God's in this. And he probably thought, okay, if God really comes through, maybe one day, like the five pastors in my community, I'll shepherd them. He couldn't have thought 1,400 churches worldwide. See how the gift works? Um, by the way, you don't take the gift to the bank, right? You don't build your life on a word of wisdom or a word of knowledge. You build your life on the word of God. Grudem was probably the most systematic in this idea of how these work says that uh, these gifts are telling something that God is doing in a spontaneous way, right? Um, let's drop down to verse 10. Here's, a, here's another speaking gift. It's a biggie, verse 10. <clears throat> to another working of miracles, to another prophecy. Here, here's how big prophecy is. Jump down to 14, verse 1. Paul said, pursue lover and desire gifts. You should desire them but especially that you should prophesy. For he who speaks in a tongue does not speak to men, but to God. We'll get to that in a minute. For no one understands him. However, in the spirit he speaks mysteries. But he who prophesies speaks edification and exhortation and comfort to men. He who speaks in a tongue edifies himself, but he who prophesies edifies the church. I wish you all spoke with tongues. Paul was a southerner. But even more that you prophesied. For he who prophesies is greater than he who speaks with tongues. Unless he interprets, the whole church may be edified. Wow. Paul talks more about prophecy than any other gift. He said we should all desire it. What the heck is going on here? Now today you hear about prophetic ministry, right? That's like code uh, for something's new, but there's nothing new. It's just all recycled. Um, 
Prophecy is a wonderful gift. I'm going to jar some of you. You know what we're doing right now is prophetic? Preaching is prophetic. Which cracks me up because churches where they think they're in the prophetic rarely preach systematically or expositionally. The book of Revelation says the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. There are evangelists, preachers, and teachers who have the gift of prophecy. They have insight in the culture many of us don't have. That's A. B, do you know how the prophetic's working right now? So from time to time, uh, people will come to me and say, you know, today was my first day, um, but I'm a little chagrined because the person that brought me probably told you what I was going through. I'm like, what are you talking about? Well, you know, I'm going through this thing in my life, and you talked about it today, so they must have told you. I'm like, wait, time out. There's no way with all these people anybody could tell me and I could ever work all that in. What's going on is the Holy Spirit is speaking to you. Do you ever go somewhere and you're in a large crowd and, and your feeling was that person was speaking right to me? The person wasn't speaking to you. Prophetically, the Holy Spirit was speaking to you. So you see how we bungled this? See how we reduced this to man's method on a stage or however you've seen it? Learn behavior. Um, believe it or not, the prophetic is alive and well at Calvary Chapel. Uh, people in our prayer room, Thursday night prayer, I had four women who wanted to gather with me on my deck. They all had, God had given them a prophetic word. And at the end, it was so wonderful, it was so beautiful. Everything they said resonated in my spirit. Everything they said, I could have found in the Bible. But the beauty of them speaking it was like God speaking it. God was speaking through them. We need people operating in these gifts. We really do. Now, I don't really operate much in this gifts. I have other gifts. My wife operates in this gift. She can be in a room with somebody, strike up a conversation. She doesn't do it a lot or all the time, but really can look at a person and say, you know, I think God's going to do X, Y, or Z. And I'm telling you, more often than not, it comes to pass. So, um, though we don't know everything about these gifts, we certainly don't have time to talk about them all. They're there. Now, there is a little bit of a downside. A little bit of the downside is the prophecy a minute crowd. Like, we're going out to lunch, and there's like eight prophetic words. It's kind of like in baseball today. If you hit 14 home runs in a day, home run's not special anymore, is it? It's the same thing with the prophetic utterance. Like, Prophetic honors for the waitress, for the, for the bus boy, for the, you know, eight for me. Like, I don't think the Holy Spirit works that way. I can't even digest one. Uh, there's also a danger because we're in like a new move of the prophetic. In the old move of the prophetic, when it went awry, people were telling people who they were going to marry and people got into bondage. And Now, do we throw the baby out with the bathwater? No. The same window that lets in fresh air lets in allergens and pollens, but we still want fresh air, right? I think if you have this gift and you should earnestly seek it, if you want to activate this gift, you need to step out. But he, here's the qualification. Those four women that prophesied to me were steeped in Scripture. Prophecy is not the primary means by which you and I grow. The Bible is. The Bible is. 
But God uses the prophetic utterances and the prophetic word. Now, there's a few gifts here. I'm not really going to touch a lot on gifts of healing. You know, I believe healing exists. There's miracles. We, we could spend a week on every one of this. I want to touch on faith. Everyone in the room has a measure of faith. The gift of faith is a powerful gift. I was down at Liberty University for college for a weekend with some young people. Blown away how in Lynchburg, Jerry Falwell had built this college with a football. I mean, it is, it is unbelievable to see. And the spirit there is wonderful. Kids from every denomination go. I had a little bit of free time, and I went down to the museum where you could see Thomas Road Baptist Church from its little beginnings and all that God has done. Jerry was not a great preacher. He was not a great orator. He was not a great author, although he did many of those things. I found out that day what he was, was a man of great faith. He could see farther ahead than most of us, and he saw less of the obstacles. You remember when the spies went in the land? Most of them have a negative report. There's giants in the land, fortified cities. We're going to be like grasshoppers. Two people have faith, Caleb and Joshua. They said, yeah, all those things are there, but we can overcome. That's the gift of faith. Every church needs the gift of faith. Now we come to this gift called tongues. Now, can I tell you, without you thinking I'm a heretic, that Paul sounds a little schizophrenic here? You know, he's telling us that he speaks in tongues more than all of us. Verse 5, chapter 14, I wish you all spoke with tongues. How could Paul wish something that wasn't possible? Church, how could Paul say something that wasn't possible? I wish you all spoke with tongues. Then later in the chapter, he's going to say, do all speak in tongues? It's a rhetorical no. So Paul, what is it? There's a difference between tongues as a gift corporately and the gift of tongues. I believe tongues, whether it's the baptism of the Holy Spirit, again, let's get rid of semantics, is out there and available for every believer. I really do. You're not a second-class citizen if it doesn't happen. You're not the best and brightest if it does. I'm just saying it's there. When Paul talks about tongues, read the rest of the chapter. We don't have time. He said, I can speak with the tongue of angels and I can speak in my own language. He talks about praying in a language when he doesn't know what to pray. Again, sounds a little schizophrenic. He talks about if someone stands up in church and speaks in tongues, there should be an interpretation. I think that's the gift of tongues, not the devotional prayer language. You might ask the question, when do I speak in tongues in my devotional life? When I'm pressed, when I'm alone with God? He draws a mini conclusion in verse 15. He said, what's the conclusion then? I pray with the Spirit, but I also pray with understanding. I sing in the Spirit, but I sing with understanding. Otherwise, if you bless with the Spirit, how will he who occupies the place of the uninformed say amen? In other words, you're speaking in tongues. What if the guy next to you doesn't even know they exist? You're going to be weird to him. That's what he's saying. Verse 17, for you indeed give 
thanks well, but the other's not edified. I thank my God, I speak in tongues more than you all. But look at verse 19. Yet in the church, and the church was in the house, by the way, back then. I would rather speak five words with my understanding, five intelligent words, that I may teach others than 10,000 words in a tongue. We'll let that sit out there for a minute. When we gather, I'd rather say five intelligent words that are still spirit-driven than spouting off in tongues for everybody to see. That's, don't argue with me, that's what Paul said. And then he goes on and talks about things being done decently in order. There's one spirit and cleans up a lot of the error that was in the Corinthian church. The key to spiritual gifts is the insertion of a chapter that wasn't a chapter. Paul didn't write in chapters. It's just right in the middle of the gifts. It's a chapter you all know because you hear it at weddings. It has absolutely nothing to do with a wedding. It's 1 Corinthians 13. If you back up a few verses, are all apostles? No. Are all prophets? No. Are all teachers? No. Are all workers of miracles? No. Do all have gifts of healing? No. Do all speak with tongues as the gift? No. Do all interpret? No. But earnestly desire the best gifts, and Paul said, I'm going to show you a better way. Here's the better way. Here's the way, Paul said. Though I speak with the tongues of men and angels, but have not love, I become sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. And though I have the gift of prophecy that I might understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I can remove mountains, but not have love, I am nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to the poor, give my body to be burned, and have not love, it profits me nothing. And we all know this. Love is kind. Love is it's not envious. It goes on. Look at, look at verse 8. Love never fails. Prophecies, they'll fail. Tongues will cease. Knowledge will vanish away. For we only know in part, and we only prophesy in part, but when that which is perfect has come, then that which is in part will be done away with. When I was a child, I spoke as a child, I understood as a child, I thought as a child. But when I became a man, I put away childish things. For now we see in a mirror, they didn't have mirrors, they would look at brass. Dimly, it was a poor reflection is the idea. But then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know just as I am known. Let me tell you this, I have a Bible and I'm not known as I am known. <laughs> that is coming when I see Christ. That's not in the Bible. Trust me. Paul said there's a better way. Still want to have the gifts. Please don't leave thinking that. But operating in love. When Paul said that um, he could speak in tongues and prophesy, but he didn't have love, he was a clanging symbol. My Bible says he was a gong. It was like hitting a gong. I was a new believer, and the only reference I had was the gong show. Anybody remember that? It's kind of like a forerunner to what we have now, some of this reality TV, like the voice. So somebody would get up and do an act, and if they didn't like it, they hit this big gong, right? Um, but then I kind of studied up on things, and Corinth had a large pagan temple. And in pagan uh, religions, they would have processions, which, by the way, creeped into the church, if some of you know what I'm talking about. And um, 
these pagan processionals, they would dress up in regalia and all, and they would walk around with cymbals and gongs, flutes, and they would make all this noise. Why? Arousing the gods, telling the gods they were there. Look what we're doing. In a pagan sense, you understand where Paul's going? He, he understands, they understand this metaphor. You're doing all this activity trying to prove to God you're somebody. And if that's your motive and it's not in love and it's not to edify people, look at what the pagans are doing. If he were speaking to a religious crowd, he would talk about what Jesus said, that when you pray on street corners to be heard aloud, you have your reward. The bottom line is to always ask, is what I'm doing out of love for the people I'm involved with? Almost every time I've been involved with the gifts, it's always been where someone has loved me and cared for me and wanted to see me succeed. And almost every time I've moved in it, it's been the same way. Love never fails. By the way, we're going to fail. We're going to get on each other's nerves. We're going to fail in the gifts. We're going to make mistakes. Till Christ comes. Had a, had a wonderful experience in the last month. First part of it, I was down the shore with my wife on a Tuesday. And she said, do you want to go to my cousin Dan's Bible study tonight? And Dan's in a deeper journey I've been involved with, so I'm like, sure. So we drive about 20 minutes inland, and we walk into Dan's, and it reminded me when I became a Christian. He has this country house, and there were like five dining room tables where all different people were eating. They were having a common meal. And I sat down and talked with the group I was with, and then 30 of us go into a room for the Bible study. And Dan did something that shook me to my core. He said, uh, Joe's here tonight. Joe, can you say hallelujah? And Joe said, hallelujah. So I knew there was like inside banter they had, right? And he goes, Sherry's here. And Bob and Monica came tonight. And he systematically named all 30 people in the room. Blew me away. And then we went through John chapter 2, but we didn't go through it knowledge-based. He was drawing out of every person. Now, if you've ever led a Bible study, you always get two or three, I'm not going to label anybody, but I've been there. <laughs> There's always two or three, whatever you want to call them. <laughs> they talk too much. They take up all, listen, I've been there. It happens. Maybe you're one of them. God bless you. Maybe I'm one. <laughs> they're there. I'm telling you they're there. And I watched how gracefully he dealt with it. And I came away saying, oh my gosh, this is what so much of the church is missing. You know, I have it. I've had it, I have it. Um, we're missing being in small platoons. The book of Acts, they didn't argue if the church should be big or small. There's 3,000 the first day. They couldn't argue. So they went to the biggest place they could find, the temple courts, not the upper room. They met in the temple, the large court of the Gentiles or wherever they met. And then they met house to house. House to house is a wonderful place for these gifts to work. Thursday night, we had a, uh, a gathering for Innovate, our school, which, by the way, has more than doubled for next year. Yeah. And um, we just went around the room. Prophetic words. Some people wrote them on their phone. Some people just shared their heart. 
Again, I was in another environment where I was reminded, wow, we need to get smaller. That's why we have a prayer room. That's why we have these meetings at the table. We need to get in small platoons. I know this. We can either argue about the Holy Spirit, quench the Holy Spirit, or we can act in the Holy Spirit. The book of Revelation, we have two churches. The one at Ephesus was doing great. They lost their first love. The church at Laodicea was doing terrible. They were lukewarm. The natural trajectory even of a Christ follower is to come to the end of your life half-hearted about Jesus. That's your natural bent. That's the road you're on if you don't say otherwise. And if you don't want to wind up there, you're going to have to pray that the Holy Spirit continues to fill you and to take you to higher ground. You really will. I don't want you to get to the end of your life saying, I should have taken more risks for God. I should have, I should have pressed into God. I should have done more for God. I don't want you to get there. I want you to taste and see now. I want you to see how good the Lord is now. You might ask me, Pastor Bob, where are you with the Holy Spirit? So you have that girl who's in the Church of Christ. She's fearful. Some of you are fearful. And then where am I? I thought of an illustration. I don't know if it works, but <laughs> it was sure funny in the life of our family. So we went to Williamsburg for years uh, to the amusement park down there. And we would go to the Outer Banks. We had friends there. And then on the way home, we would go to Bush Gardens. And my kids were thrill seekers, and so was my wife. I'm not, right? I don't need to go fast or high or anything like that. But uh, my kids were riding like the worst roller coasters at five, and so was my wife. Now, I had fear, uh, but I would mask it, and I was six foot seven, and I could never fit in the, I could never get that harness over my shoulder. So I would go ride the boat or the little train, right? And, uh, so we were in the Outer Banks, and now my youngest is a teenager. And she kind of missed out on a lot of that. So we're driving back from the Outer Banks, and everybody says, why don't we go to Bush Gardens as like a nostalgic time, and Carly will experience together what we always had. And so we got there, and I finagled my way out of the first roller coaster. And my whole family goes on, and I can still see them walking towards me, and they're wobbly, Right? <laughs> And my wife and my other daughter said, we're done for the day. I'm like, what? Oh, yeah. I mean, we're done for the day. I said, look, the boat. I told them where the boat was. <laughs> I'll meet you down there, okay? I said, however, I'm going to ride one roller coaster because it's tame because I've ridden it every time we've been here called the Big Bad Wolf. So the rest of us go down to the Big Bad Wolf, and I'm sitting there bragging about how this is a piece of cake and all. I am one person removed to getting on, and the man goes, you know, you keep talking about how this is a piece of cake. Do you know they changed the ride? <laughs> like, what? He goes, oh, yeah. He goes, he goes we're going to get on the ride. They're going to turn all the lights out, and you're going to go from, like, zero to 100 in two seconds and then drop. <laughs> we get on the ride. I'm clenched, eyes closed. The ride ends, my son's in the car in front of me. He literally leaps out and starts running down the ramp. So I get off, I'm wobbly and woozy. I get down there, he's where you buy the picture, he's buying the video. And I said, Mike, why are you buying the video? You're in the car in front of me, how did you know what I was doing? He said, Dad, 
it rocked my world, and I couldn't imagine, couldn't imagine what was going on with you. I got to end the story. I went to the boat. When I got to the boat, my wife was laying on a bench, my daughter on a bench, I laid on the bench. When Mike and Carly came back, we're all laying on the bench. Mike rides all the roller coasters of Carly and then announces like a month later, he was sick too, but he just went with it because she had nobody left. All right, what's the point I'm making? The point I'm making with the Holy Spirit is there's an element of fear and risk. And where I am at the part of my life is it would be so much easier to kind of just curl up with a book on theology and read my Bible and have devotional time and not let the Holy Spirit activate the gifts in my life. So in some ways, I'm trying to get over those fears. Because if you walk with God long enough, you can get very comfortable. So we're all, I think, in similar spots, just maybe different. The invitation's out there, guys. There is a work of the Spirit. The Holy Spirit longs to work. And we're not saying he's not working in churches where they don't believe this. He's working. But this is an invitation for you to cry out to God in your life, maybe learn from others about the deep and abiding work of the Spirit.